American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Ridiculous person. Yes. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm Amy. And I'm Flump Cumblestum. I sort pelicans. You sort pelicans? I sort pelicans on the weekends, y'all. It doesn't even... I sort them according to thing. size. It's not even a thing. I put some pelicans in one, one of the big big ones. I sort them in my mind okay. when I see them. All right. I put it away. Like, that's a big penguin, uh, okay. pelican. Did I say penguin? Yeah. I'm flump cumblestum. All right. And this is the podcast that brings you all the interesting, crazy, nostalgic stories from years gone by. And we do it year by year. And and Amy goes into a murder or a death or a UFO thing. And then I'm just cool. I'm flump stumblecum. All right. I'm a cool dude. That is Joe, actually. My name is Joe. So, I'm working on a, a, a podcast name. I've been working on it now for 46 episodes. This is episode 47. Oh, your favorite number because 47? you live in the days of high school football. Hey, you don't have to be mean about it, but 47, yes, it was my high school football number, 47, so it. I've been obsessed. But in a weird way, that number has just come up all the time. Like from the time when I was in high school, I started noticing it, and it would it just always, no, the clock is always 47. There's no ratio where you're going to see that no. more yeah, often look it than up. any other two-digit number. 47 you is officially, just, no, no, it really is. There's, you, there's been studies done. It's officially okay. the most random number. All right. It is the default random number for any person. If they say, oh, come up with a number, they'll say 47. Okay. It's been, there's been studies done. Look All right. All so, right. Anyway, and so it's the greatest number, and this is our greatest episode because it's episode 47. I'll just crazy effects on that. No. 47. All right. Okay. Can't <laughs> wait to hear how that turns out. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you seem like a naysayer. I don't know. It seems like one of us on this podcast is like yeah. upbeat and trying you to think? make things happen, and the other one just trying to drag us down. You think? Sometimes. I think you're the one that's do- dragging it down, babe. Yeah, well, you, you're you a drag okay. shell. I'll your head, All your right. head is... So we are in part two of 1977. 1977, that's right. We left off. We finished February, barely, uh, of 1977 in our first episode. Yes. Uh, and now we are at March 1st of 1977. So we'll take go us into there. that to our next episode of the 77s. And so I'll start with March 1st, actually, of 1977. Okay. When Lenny and Squiggy get stood up, Laverne and Shirley oh. take pity on them. Okay. We're not doing Laverne and Shirley <laughs> this, this, episodes. This is now a Laverne throughout. and Shirley podcast. No. There are no... How many Laverne and Shirley podcasts are All right, podcasts so you're thinking from now on, whatever the year is, we'll just do whatever the top... Episodes. No, whatever the top show is that year, you're going to splice in. No. I, can, no. I hear your wheels turn. <laughs> not every, just... Just Laverne and Shirley. All right. This is a now a Laverne. This is American Timelines, a Laverne and Shirley podcast. No, okay. All right, what and else? And then March 5th, 1977, Barbara Streisand takes over the number one spot on the Billboard charts oh. with a song from that movie that, remember, last year a came Star out a movie? Born? 
Star is Born came out in 76. Oh, I don't remember. This song is called... Oh, it's Green Sleeves or something. Evergreen. Evergreen. (laughs) Green Sleeves. Maybe she says... Maybe she says green sleeves in there. Yeah, um, green sleeves. Do you know the song? How it goes? I I know it. Like it. I don't think it. I don't think she says evergreen in the song, so I can't ever remember how it goes. Yeah, you'll probably not want to hear it, but she composed and performed it with lyrics by Paul Williams. Um, Paul Williams, that little short, that little short guy with the long hair that was always on Hollywood Squares. He was like a dwarf or something. Maybe you remember him. I I don't. I re, I kind of remember a little guy. With I mean, long he was. Hair. A, I don't think he was a think dwarf. It, are he you was thinking of Bruce really short. No, he was really short, and he had like. Uh, I think long I know what you're talking hair. about. Didn't he play? Yeah, he played the. It was Paul. Williams. He was in Smoking the Bandit when he was. He was like Maybe. the sidekick with the, the know. bad guy sidekick thing. Um. But uh, it's uh, what else do I have about this? Um. It was nominated. Uh, for Grammys in three categories. Okay. And it won for Best Pop Vocal Performance and Female Song of the Year. As an easy chair. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know this song? Yeah. Oh, she's holding hands with the the guy from A Star Is Born in this video. Is that Chris Christopherson? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. He wanted to kill himself after that. So yeah. did the director and everybody else. Because everyone who works with so Barbara Streisand is... Wants to kill themselves immediately because she's a terrible, awful person. Uh, but her singing's mediocre, so that's why she's yeah. famous, I guess. It's like a, I guess it's an acquired taste. The people that love Maybe. her love her. And then March tenth, nineteen seventy-seven. I might have to edit this one back together. We'll just read through it and see what's interesting. Okay. Um, I, I can't remember if I put this in the good order, but. On March 10th, 1977, director Roman Polanski Mm -hmm. pled guilty of raping a 13-year-old girl in 1977, Mm -hmm. but fled the U.S. to avoid charges. This is why his 2011 film Carnage, starring Jodie Foster, Kate Winslet, Christopher Waltz, and John C. Riley, although set in New York, was actually filmed in Paris. Yes. So I have a question about that. I think it's a statutory rape, though. But she's 13. Right. I, I'm, like the girl right. is willing. You're saying she's willing. No, but. I'm not, right. I'm just saying. I'm saying. I know she's 13. Yeah. But what I'm saying is the. I'm. Th- I think that the charge was statutory rape. Oh, okay. Um, well, my question is why are people still willing to work with somebody who raped a 13 year old? Yeah. Like, it's like the whole Woody Allen thing. Like it everyone's is. like, oh, he's you're such right. a genius. So it's cool that he rapes his daughter. Yeah, you're right. How come they get away with it? I don't know. Like, I don't. I don't get it. Is Roman I mean, Polanski's stuff it, that amazing? It's so. It's so. Um, Kate Winslet, Jodie Foster, they're great. John C. Riley, fabulous. I was just yeah. watching Step Brothers. Right. But I don't know. I don't know what it is about those two. Um, they uh, the grand jury charged Polanski with rape by use of drugs, perversion, sodomy, lewd and lascivious act upon a child under fourteen, yes. furnishing a controlled substance to a minor. And this ultimately led to his guilty plea to a different charge of unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor. So they were drinking. Well, he was giving her drugs. Drugs, I get, but like it's a Bill Cosby situation, yeah. I think. Just like I said, like that was a thing in the seventies that people did. Just kind of mm-hmm. like your an- analogy of, oh, we can overlook the slavery stuff from the founding fathers because that's the times they lived in. But John Adams didn't have slaves. Neither did John Quincy Adams. Oh, they thought good. it was wrong, and they didn't. So that proves your point wrong because 
some people were like, shit, this is crazy. Why are you guys owning people? Yeah. This is awful. So in the 70s, everyone, it was probably a common thing to drug and rape women. And everybody just, oh, you're a woman. Sorry. There's nothing you but, can do about but it. But then in the, but then in the, in the 90s or whenever Woody Allen's thing was, mm. it wasn't. Yeah, Woody Allen's thing's different, I think. That's like a daughter that he adopted and then had sex I'm, with her. I don't know what it, that it, is exactly. It, it, I'm just saying that when he, when that whole thing came out, it wasn't culturally common to slip things in women's drinks like it was in the 70s. Right, in the 90s, right. But, when the stuff with Woody so Allen, yeah, that's a different thing. Why but still, do people my, forgive him? That's my big question is why do people continue to work with these people that did right. these awful things? right. Um, I don't know. It just seems weird. All right. We're getting too. Yeah. We're getting too serious, too gross. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of stuff about, uh, his testimony. Um, and I have info about who the girl was and how he knew her and everything. It was like, she was an actress and a model and he asked the the mother permission to have her stay at his house and all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. she thought for a, a photo shoot or something. And, and, uh, yeah, it was actually during a photo shoot that he gave her some champagne and, and they were trying to do pictures and she got woozy and whatever and all that. So it was just like Bill Cosby stuff, oh. according to Wikipedia. So, um, And then she woke up and he was, you know, penetrator and all that stuff. Uh. Um, yeah, awful. Yeah. Um, of course, that's according to her. It's all according to Wikipedia. And that was her thing. And um, so it's just. That whole Roman Polanski thing happened then. So you can look it up online, but that's kind of gross, and I don't really want to talk yeah, about it yeah. <laughs> too much. It's really not funny, uh, and it's disgusting. But I remember I've always heard about Roman Polanski and the whole controversy, but I didn't really know what the deal was. Yeah, I didn't um, either. I thought it was more similar to um, who was the guy who was a uh, – he was with the, the whole uh, MacArthur – McCarthyism – yeah. Thing and it was somebody who left and he was naming people who were sim- uh, communists. Oh or right. Whatever, and yeah. then he took off and then came back later. I can't. You remember. thought that's what the Roman Polanski I, thing? No, was? I thought it was similar to that, or like some kind of political stuff. But oh, I you didn't, didn't know I didn't it was, know it was a actual rape. rape. Yeah, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. I don't think I really paid much of attention to who he was. Or well, and it doesn't was. sound like I was right. It sounds that's not what you described as not statutory rape. No, yeah. Um, so I I don't know why I well, thought that. Polanski he has he's only admitted to the statutory rape part, I guess. But okay, um, Geimer is the uh, the girl's name is uh, Samantha Geimer. It was a, Samantha Jane Gailey at the time, but she claims that he was, mm-hmm. you know taking pictures of her and gave her champagne and then she woke up with mm-hmm. and saying it. no to him and all that. Ugh, I don't like talking about that. Anyway, March 15th, 1977, <laughs> Three's Company oh, yeah. <laughs> was the number three uh, show that year, according to Nielsen Ratings. I believe ratings. that was the number three show. Like, that's such a... That is, I, I love it for its values, for yeah. what it is, but it's such a shit show. It's such a farce. But the... The... Uh, it, there's a lot of episodes of that that don't hold up now because of the whole premise. Right. Uh, you know the whole premise, right? After crashing up and, and how I, I love I love pilot episodes of shows. So I watched the pilot episode years ago of this. Yeah. And I remember very clearly after crashing a party and finding himself passed out in the bathtub, culinary school student Jack <laughs> Tripper meets Janet Wood, a florist, and Chrissy Snow, a secretary in need of a new roommate to replace their departing roommate, Eleanor. Having only been able to afford to live at the YMCA, Jack quickly accepts the offer to move in with the duo. 
However, due to overbearing landlord Stanley Roper's intolerance for a co-ed living situation, mm -hmm. even in a multi-bedroom apartment, Jack is allowed to move in only after Janet tells Mr. Roper that Jack is gay. That's right. Although Mr. Roper figures out Jack's true sexuality in the second episode, she does not tell her husband. Oh, no. Although, Mrs. Oh, Roper. Sorry. Although Mrs. Roper figures out Jack's true sexuality in the second episode, she does not tell her husband, who tolerates but mocks him. Frequently I didn't siding, know that Mrs. Roper knew. Frequently siding with the three roommates instead of her husband. Mrs. Roper's bond with the roommates grows until the eventual spinoff, The Ropers. Yeah, because remember, she was always trying to bang Jack. <laughs> like, she was always oh, flirting with right. him, chasing yeah. him around and yeah. stuff. And he's like, no, yeah. And then, uh, but, and Stanley would never think she was. Because yeah. he's, oh, he's gay. And then it was just nonstop gay jokes about, you well, know, and, St and Stanley was so, like, Al Bundy. yeah. Oh, and also Al Bundy. Al bundy like, he, yeah. Like, she was trying to, she was, like, real horny all the yeah, time. Yeah, and he never wanted to bang her. Yeah. yeah. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous thing. And The Ropers was a great show. No, oh, I don't know about that. Anyway, but the, but the whole thing about it is Jack, like, they had a party. They had, a, like, a mm -hmm. crazy drinking party or tons of people there in the seven Crazy 70s pill, drugs, coke yeah. party, probably. And they wake up, and there's a guy passed out in their bathtub. And, and then they... And they're just, like, hey, why don't you move in with us? Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, I need a place to stay. So, well, the other thing is you got to pretend you're gay. And that was hilarity. It was. Hilarity ensued then. Yes. Anyway. Um, and then did you know about Three's a Crowd? No. Because after the Ropers left, Jack continued the charade when the new building manager, Ralph Furley, takes over the apartment complex. Yeah. And Mr. Furley insists that his hard-nosed brother, Bart, the building's new owner, would also never tolerate gays living with, or straight people living, men living with women. Yes. Unless they were gay. Jack eventually meets his love interest, Vicki Bradford, which would lead to three's a crowd. Oh, no. So there was He became four? a chef. Yeah. And then he, I think... Three's company must have went away at that point. And Three's a crowd was Jack as a chef with his new wife. Yeah. I don't know who the third person was. Maybe they had a kid or Larry moved in with them. I can't, I can't remember. Oh, uh, but that sounds awful. I, yeah, I remember. You do remember it? I remember it vaguely. I remember it coming on and like, oh, now what's this show? And, yeah. Um, but I, I don't remember details of it. Hmm. It was on for a long time. Three's a crowd? No, Three's, oh, three's company. company. Yeah, it was. One in the 80s, I think. Mm -hmm. And then March 22nd, 1977, Laverne and Shirley want to buy a new couch and find out about a furniture sale at, in a house Shirley says is haunted. When they and Lenny and Squiggy go to buy the couch, they find out she may be right. I think I remember that it's episode. A haunted episode of Laverne and Shirley. I think I rem you know, I remember anything that has to do with Halloween. Yeah, you would love that. Yeah. Um. And rest in peace, Penny Marshall. She is now haunting couches. That's right. From heaven. And then March 26, 1977, Daryl Hall and John Oates burst onto the 70s scene with a number one hit on the Billboard charts. All right. Rich Girl. She's a rich girl, and she go too far, and you know it don't matter anyway. It's a bitch girl. On your own man money. You can rely on your old man money. The song's lyrics are about a spoiled girl who can rely on her parents' money to do whatever she wants. The song was rumored to be about the then-scandalous newspaper heiress, Patty Hearst. Oh. In fact, the title character in the song is based on a spoiled heir to a fast food chain who was an ex-boyfriend ex of Daryl Hall's girlfriend, Sarah Allen. But Patty Hearst had already had the kidnapping thing, we've, we've learned. Right, but... Daryl Hall said the title character is based on a spoiled heir to a fast food chain who was an ex-boyfriend of Daryl Hall's girlfriend. 
So Daryl Hall was dating a girl named Sarah Allen, what? and the song was about her ex-boyfriend who was rich and spoiled. But you can't write you're a rich boy in a song, so I changed it to a girl. All right. That's what that's what Daryl Hall told Rolling Stone. He's and he's always got some wisdom to impart. Yeah. <laughs> well, remember he's, he's didn't the, he say everybody every, every song is stolen yeah. from a Hall and Oates song? Yeah, everything <laughs> is this like Hall and Oates song. Not exactly everything, but some real good ones. Um, yeah. But Daryl Hall said. Uh, that she was still friends with that ex-boyfriend, and his name is Victor Walker. He even named him. He came to our apartment, and he was acting kind of strange. His father was very rich. I think he was involved with some kind of a fast food chain. I said, man, this guy's out of out of mind, but he doesn't have to worry about it because his father's going to bail him out of any problems he gets in. So I sat down and wrote that chorus. He can rely on the old man's money. He can rely on the old man's money. He's oh, a rich guy. That's awful. And he sat there and he wrote it. What do you mean that's awful? It sounds that, exactly that like... singing is my, awful. My singing is great. All right, what's next? Anyway, so that's what happened. And then... Uh, oh, and did you know... Oh, there's a killer uh, uh, tie to this song. Oh, there is? Several years later, Daryl Hall read an interview with David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Killer, in which Berkowitz claimed that Rich Girl motivated him to murder people. Oh, <laughs> However, Daryl Hall says that can't be the case because the song was not released until after the Son of Sam murders had already begun. Oh, okay. But I could see if you were going to, like, okay, I'm going to give up murdering, and then Hall and Oates comes on. Oh, God, I'm I know. kill someone. I want to kill everybody now. <laughs> John Oates' mustache makes him want to kill everybody. Uh, and this, if you look at the video for this, look this up online, and um, Daryl Hall's wearing giant ski glasses. Uh, yeah, ski goggles. It, and, it's a, in a big mink coat. In a big mink coat. What was Oates wearing? He was wearing something stupid, wasn't he? He was like all black or something. I don't I think, think he was. His mustache. But his mustache is ridiculous. His mustache. Um, okay. And then on March 27, 1977, the deadliest crash in aviation history occurred. Not in the skies, but on the runway. Oh, Between tummy. two Boeing 747s on March 27th. This is known as the Tenerife Airport Disaster. Okay. I hope I'm saying that right. Tenerife. T e n e r. I don't think you are. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not. I'm pretty sure that's T-E-N-E-R-I-F-E. not it. T e n e r i f e. Tenerife. No. Tenerife. <laughs> Let's just stop. Anyway, it happened at the runway at Los Rodeos Airport okay. on the Spanish island of Tenerife, Canary Islands. 583 casualties. Wow. So they just crashed into each other. Yeah. So a terrorist incident at. Grand Canaria Airport had caused many flights to be diverted to Los Rodeos, including the two aircraft involved in this accident. According to Wikipedia, the airport quickly became congested with parked airplanes blocking the only taxiway and forcing departed aircraft to taxi on the runway instead. Patches of thick fog were drifting across the airfield, so the aircraft and control tower were unable to see one another. Well, that's a dangerous situation. Yes. The collision occurred when KLM-4805 initiated its takeoff run while Pan Am 1736, shrouded in fog, was still on the runway and about to turn off onto the taxiway. Mm-hmm. The impact and resulting fire killed everyone on board the KLM plane and most of the occupants of the Pan Am plane, with only 61 survivors in the front section of the aircraft. Oh, man. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is crazy. And then on April 1st, 1977, DC Comics' original candidate for its first... Headlining black superhero was oh. the Black Bomber. 
Okay. The Black Bomber was a white racist who would turn into a black superhero under stress. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. No, I can't believe this is a thing, and I didn't know about it. This is where we should have our comics expert, my nerdy brother who loves comics, and talk yeah. to him about this. And see Actually, the Black Bomber was originally known <laughs> as the uh, the Black Enthusiast. <laughs> I have to take my allergy medicine now. No, okay, anyway. Comics historian Don Markstein called it an insult to practically everybody with any point of view at all. The character was eventually born as Black Lightning. Oh, I thought it was Black Panther. No, Black Bomber. Black I, no, Bo- it was I Black know Bomber Black Bomber, but I thought he was going to turn into Black Panther. Oh, no, Black Panther's Marvel. Duh. Oh, sorry. This is DC. How dare you mix the two? That's true. Marvel has started... In 1940, whatever, I don't know. But, I there's more about this. When the editor who had proved the Black Bomber left the company before the character had, had seen print, Tony Isabella, whose previous writing experience included Luke Cage, a black Marvel comic superhero with his own title. You know, that's been a Netflix show. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Um, uh, he was asked to salvage the character. Isabella convinced the editors to instead use his Black Lightning character, which he had been developing for some time, instead of the Black Bomber. Okay. So Isabella wrote the first ten issues of Black Lightning before handing it over to Dennis O'Neill. Only one issue scripted by O'Neill came out before the series was canceled in 1978 as part of a general large-scale pruning of the company's superhero titles known as the DC Implosion. Boring. The DC nerds won't think that. They'll be like, oh, they covered the DC implosion. I'm going to subscribe to this podcast. Yep. Um, April 9th, 1977. ABBA. 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 Is it ABBA? ABBA. Yeah, you're right. Is it ABBA? No, I think you're right. ABBA? ABBA. I think it's ABBA. Yeah. ABBA takes over the number one spot on the Billboard charts with the biggest Dancing hit in the world. Queen. Yep. Only seventeen. Oh, dancing queen! I sing just as good as Amy does. The recording sessions for Dancing Queen began on August fourth, nineteen seventy-five. The demo was called Boogaloo. Okay. And as the sessions progressed, Anderson and Ulvaeus found inspiration in the dance rhythm of George McRae's Rock Your Baby, which we covered earlier, remember that? Mm-hmm. As well as the drumming on Dr. John's 1972 album, Dr. John's Gumbo. All right. Are you a dancing queen? No. April 14th. I don't believe I could be qualified as that. You're not much of a dancer. No offense. Well, I don't, I'm not, a, I think to be a dancing queen, you would have to dance a lot. Well, you are. Like, you would have to dance at home, doing the dishes, you dance your way to the car, you dance while you're out places. Yeah. If you're the dancing queen, I'm saying. Yeah, you have to always be dancing. Always, pretty much close to always A-B-D, be dancing. Always be dancing. Yeah, be dancing queen. Yeah. To the, the queen of everybody that's dancing. Yeah. April 14th, 1977, Maureen Weston, while in a rocking chair marathon, didn't sleep for 18 days and 17 hours. How can you be in a rocking chair <laughs> and not fall asleep? Jesus. Just thinking about that makes me feel like I want to go to sleep right now. But it's how, April 14th, May 2nd. You said it May was a 2nd. rocking chair competition? Yeah. Is that what you said? And she started to hallucinate towards the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> how can you... But how, she suffered no long-lasting effects. How can you... The whole point of a rocking chair is to fall asleep in it. <laughs> so how can you not I think it fall was asleep? To, I think it was to see how long you could rock. 
It was yeah, like one of those I get like, that. I get yeah. that. But how can you not fall asleep? Why do they have? A, why do they have this activity? competition? I, was it raising money that for something? That is like another good question. What in the hell's wrong with people? Um, but staying awake for such long stretches poses so many health risks that Guinness. So many health risks Guinness chose to no longer acknowledge sleep deprivation records. God, why would you pick that one? That it would be out of all the things. All like if I had to pick, go oh, to the Guinness I, Book of World Records. I got records, mine. I got it. At, Fingernails. At, Oh, that's gross. Those long fingernails, yes. that's what I would do immediately. No, you have the whole list, and, and you got to put them in order of what you would do. Your fingernails, number one. And then what's the very bottom, close to the very, very bottom, if not the last one for me, it would sleep be sleep deprivation. deprivation. Oh, that's because you love sleep. It's my favorite thing to do. I wonder if there's a, a pube-growing one. There probably is. They have them for everything. Because I'm... I wouldn't you, have to. You already got that. I wouldn't that have babe. to work very hard. No, for that you one. <laughs> <laughs> I can already. I can probably already qualify. <laughs> yeah, that's gross. April sixteenth, nineteen seventy-seven. David Soul takes over the number one spot. You remember who David Soul was? No. David Soul is probably most famous for starring in the TV show Starsky and Hutch. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Hutch. I think he was Starsky. No, he he was, was Hutch. He Hutch. Yeah, no. he was Hutch. You're Hutch. Anyway, uh, Don't Give Up on Us is by him. And he was riding the success of his TV show, and he went back to his early career choice of singer. And he hit the number one spot on Billboard chart. Remember I how never knew that he was a singer. I don't think I knew that either, but th- th- this song isn't good either. I don't know. Did you, you remember the song? I can't remember what it was. I don't know if I knew it or not. Oh, that's awful. Oh, my God. I've never, I've, I don't think I've ever wanted to kill myself more than right now. That was, that is a terrible song. Bless you. That song sucks. You're getting all stuffed up and stuff. I know, and I'm not even drinking beer. I know. So maybe what it's not that? beer. What is it then? It's something at this desk, right? Because it's always sitting here, right? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's more than just that. dust? Maybe. Is the computer screen? I don't know. Uh, Anyway, that song sucks, and David Soul sucks. Yep, that's right. You may have heard at the beginning of the podcast where I say Richard Marks sucks. Yeah, I didn't like that. You don't like that? Even the last episode when I did it like three times? No, I thought it was stupid. I'll take it out. All right. Now it won't be in there anymore. Uh, But... It's a good thing, baby. I should change it to this guy sucks. David Soul sucks. And then April 20th, 1977, Annie Hall. Yep. I've never seen Annie Hall. It was a Best Picture nomination that year. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, a neurotic New York comedian, Alvy Singer, falls in love with the ditzy Annie Hall, directed by Woody Allen. Speaking of Woody Allen raping children. Yep. Um, the stars Woody Allen, Diane Keaton, and Tony Roberts. And this is the screen debut... Yeah. Of one of your favorite actresses of all time. No, I don't know if she's your favorite actress, but she's from one of your favorite horror-type thriller movies. The screen debut? Yep. The screen debut of... I'll tell Jamie you, Lee Curtis? Nope. Kinda. I mean, wrong. Not her, but similar. 
In that same vein. Uh, God. We already did Linda Blair. Her first name rhymes with Figorny. Oh, Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver. Alien? Yeah, is she from Alien? Is that yeah. one of your favorite things? You love Alien? I do like that movie, but yeah. it, when you said horror movie, I always go to the Halloween kind of movies. Well, I, I'm sorry. I just, you know, I mean, you're I probably can't... right. It's considered a horror well, movie, Well, let me just, I'll just quit this podcast. Okay. She, so this was her film debut? <laughs> yep. 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 Sigourney Weaver's screen debut in a non-speaking part as Alvy's date near the end of the movie. April 23rd, 1977, Thelma Houston takes over the number one spot on the Billboard charts. Oh, God. Uh, she sang, um... Don't look at me. I don't want you to see me this way. No. I don't know. That's not what it's called. It's, uh... Don't. Oh, don't leave me this way. No. I can't survive. Can't stay alive without your love. Baby. My heart is full of love and desire for you. You know that? No, I don't I don't remember it. Do this was first charting as a hit for Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, who never went platinum, featuring Teddy Pendergrass. Oh, Teddy Pendergrass. It's like Chase used to say that on here. Teddy Pendergrass. Yeah, and it was later a disco hit for Motown artist Thelma Houston in 1977. Yep. It's a good one. Written by Kenneth Gamble, Leon Huff, and Carrie Gilbert. And then April 30th, 1977, Glenn Campbell unfortunately comes back and takes over the number one spot on Billboard charts. And I don't know. I don't know what it is. Southern Nights. God, how does that go? Oh, God. I don't. I remember Glenn Campbell's terrible. So 70s. Yeah, this is so 70s. I don't know. We should have had that as our wedding song, honey. We weren't in the South then. Yeah, it's just a nice We song. were in the North. No, it's that sucks, too. I mean, it's not that bad, actually. Um, it kind of sucks. You can go with that. Eh, it doesn't suck as bad as Richard Marks. May 7th, 1977. Mm-hmm. The Eagles take over the number one spot on the Billboard chart. New Kid in Town? Was nope. That what it was? I can't we remember. did that one already. We did it? Oh. This is their big one. Uh, Welcome to uh, Oh, Hotel California. California. Now, I hope you looked up some creepy stuff about this. I got a whole bunch of stuff on here. That's okay. why it's so big and doesn't fit here. So this is the title track from the Eagles album of the same name. Yes. It was released as a single in February of 1977. It was a big one. Yep. And? Okay. The Eagles' original recording of the song features Henley singing the lead vocals and it concludes with an extended section of electric guitar interplay between Felder and Joe Walsh. The song is considered the most famous of the band and uh, its long guitar coda has been voted the best guitar solo of all time by readers of Guitarist Magazine in 1998. Oh, wow. It won the, it the, uh, the song was awarded the Grammy Award for Record of the Year. Mm-hmm. The lyrics of the song have been given various interpretations by fans and critics alike. Yep. And the Eagles themselves describe the song as their interpretation of the high life in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. In the 2013 documentary History of the Eagles, Henley said that the song was about a journey from innocence to experience. And that's all. Here are the conjectures. 
according to Wikipedia. This is what I want to know about. In the 1980s, the Reverend Paul Risley of Cornerstone oh, Church God. in Burlington, Wisconsin. You know who he is? No, oh. but I can't wait to hear what he, this guy is He alleged say. that Hotel California referred to a San Francisco hotel that was purchased by Anton LaVey and converted the into of his Church of Satan. Yep. Other rumors suggested that the Hotel California was the Camarillo State Mental Hospital. Okay. The term colitas in the first stanza, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. Warm, you know, warm have, smell of colitas rising up through the air. Has been interpreted as a sexual slang or a reference to marijuana. Colitas means little tails in Spanish. In Mexican slang, it refers to buds of the cannabis. Marijuana so plant. Marijuana. According to Glenn Fry, the warm smell is colitas. It means little tails the very top of the plant. The Eagles manager, Irving Azoff, appears to lend support to the marijuana hypothesis. However, Felder said that colitas is a plant that grows in the desert that blooms at night, and it has this kind of pungent, almost funky smell. Don Hen- Henley came up Don Henley came up with a lot of the lyrics for that song, and he came up with colitas. Okay. Other interpretations of the song include heroin addiction and cannibalism. Cannibalism? <laughs> What in the hell? On the various interpretations, Henley said, some of the wilder interpretations of that song have been amazing. It was really about the excess of American culture and certain girls we knew, but it was also about the uneasy balance between art and commerce. <laughs> art and commerce? <laughs> yeah. That's what he said. Okay. Maybe it was, yeah, art and that's, I think that's what Like he, you have to make money to yeah, compromise your art. Yeah, you can't have to put money. out a second album. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. May 14th, 1977. Mm-hmm. Leo Sayer takes over the number one spot oh, of Billboard chart again with his oh my crazy God. curly hair. You know who Leo Sayer, I decided who he is, who he looks who? like is, do you remember in the Simpsons episode when they talk about yes, Homer? Yes, Disco Stew. No, when Homer, oh, I know you're Marge's about. boyfriend, his yes. nerdy boyfriend, Arnie Ziff, I think yeah, was his name. Yeah, that's right, good. Before, before uh, that's right. Homer comes in, he's Arnie Ziff. Is who Artie, is. I think it was Artie. Artie Ziff. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Leo Sayer takes over with When I Need You, a popular song by... Oh, I written know by this Al- one too. Albert Hammond and Carol Bayer. It's cold out, but hold out, and do like I do when I need you. Yep. Yep. I remember that it's cold out part. That's I remember yeah. that part. That's yeah. about it. Um, that just takes me right back to being a kid. May 16th, 1977. Until 1977, there was a commercial heliport on the roof of what is now the MetLife building. In New York City, with shuttle flights to local airports until several people were killed in a horrible accident there. Whoa. What happened? On May 16, 1977, about one minute after an S-61 landed and its 20 passengers disembarked, Mm -hmm. the right front landing gear collapsed, causing the aircraft to topple onto its side with the rotor still turning. Oh, man. One of the five 20-foot... One of the five 20-foot blades broke off and flew into a crowd of passengers waiting to board. Three men were killed instantly and another died later in a hospital. The blade sailed over the side of the building and killed a female pedestrian on the corner of Madison Avenue and 43rd Street. Oh, man. Two other people were seriously injured. Helicopter service was quickly suspended and has never resumed. Isn't that a horrible, terrible accident? Yes. Oh, Ugh. God. Yuck. I never want to do that. No. That sounds terrible. I'd... I would never want to. I, I don't want to ever ride in a helicopter. No, I don't. I, I'm okay not doing that as well. I also don't ever want to be killed by helicopter blades. 
No, yeah. I think I think I'm with you on that too. Yeah, if I had to choose a We're, way, the American timeline comes down firmly on the side yeah. of I don't. We, we not prefer not to be murdered by helicopter, helicopter blades. blades. Yeah, yeah. If I could pick a way, we've I always probably, said that. Yeah, we've always we we stand firm on that belief. Yes, we do. And we're going to hold to that. May twenty first, nineteen seventy seven. Stevie Wonder takes over the number one spot on the Billboard chart again. Yep, Stevie Wonder, baby. All right, what is it, Sir Duke? That one I don't know. This one is a tribute to Duke Ellington. Oh, sweet. who had, who died in nineteen seventy four. Okay. The lyrics also refer to Count Basie, Glenn Miller, Louis Armstrong, and Ella Fitzgerald. Okay. And um, you don't know this one? Nope. It's probably great because it's Stevie Wonder. Then watch it be awful. No, all of Stevie Wonder songs are great, and you are blasphemous for saying his 80s songs weren't good. I just didn't think they were. They're soft rock, adult contemporary. What? He's adult contemporary. He is not. He's funky and awesome. No, the 80s version of him is adult contemporary. He's the same guy he always was. He's the same motherfucker that he ever was. The same motherfucker that he ever was. All right, was. calm down. Oh, yeah. I, I know this. Yeah, it's a great. Yeah, that's great, right? Yeah. Anyway. That you're right, Stevie. Seventies Stevie Wonder is the best Stevie Wonder. Yeah, all funky and all great. Okay. Stevie Wonder is the greatest of all time. Oh, God, I love Stevie Wonder. I want to meet him someday. Yep. Like the Cosby's did. All right. What else? Okay. <laughs> uh, the number one grossing movie of the year came out on May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy seven. You know what it is? Oh, the number the one. The number one grossing movie, nineteen seventy seven. It, it grossed. $221 million. I can't think of it. Right? What? Two, 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 one, two, eight, oh, nine, nine, four. That's $221 million, right? Yeah. Two, that seems like a lot, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. $221,280,994. Boy, we just saw the place value chart go through your head. What? The place value chart of elementary school just <laughs> flew through the room. Yeah, I'm just not smart when it comes to numbers. All right. You oh, want to guess smart. what it is? When it comes to numbers. You're a bitch. You are a bitch. That's what it is. You're a bitch. And I've been holding myself back from calling you that until now. I know. You've never called me that. You're a bitch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Sorry. It just feels good. You're not really a bitch. I don't think no. you've ever... I don't think you've ever called me that and not said sorry, sorry right away twice. Yeah, I don't think I, can, I don't think I can actually yeah, call you that. Yeah, you say that. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I've never once in my life actually, even never, I've never even thought to myself, "What a bitch" or anything like that. Yeah. So I've been good. pretty lucky because mo- most men do think that about their wives. They do. They yeah. think they're a bitch. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> you said that really fast. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Every actually, yeah. you every guy I've ever met, yeah. every man, every male I've ever spoken to that's married. Yeah. Every single one. Bard Zero constantly complains to me about their bitch wife. <laughs> You're <laughs> yeah. kidding. You name a, you name a man. Jack uh, Marshall. Yep. <laughs> always. <laughs> Melissa's a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You, you name a man. All oh of them. Every single God. one. That's pretty funny. Every single man I've ever met. 
except right. for me. So I just I just learned you're cosmic um, so cosmic wisdom that I don't think women are supposed to know. You, I think you spilled. Oh, the I beans. just lost my man card, you didn't did. I? I think you did. I can't get into the man clubs anymore. That's all right. I'll just hang out with the ladies from now on. Wait a minute. I'm a ladies man. All right, what's next? What movie? You gotta guess the movie. I, oh, I can't remember. Twentieth Century Fox heavily promoted the film. Yeah. The other. Twentieth Century Fox heavily promoted the film The Other Side of Midnight, thinking this would be a flop. Oh, they did. George Lucas was so sure this would be a flop that instead of attending the premiere, he went on vacation to Hawaii with his good friend Steven Spielberg, where they came up with the idea for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, so it was um, Return? Uh, no, um, Empire Strikes Back, or did we already do that? A New Hope, Star Wars. A New Hope. Oh, it's the first one. The very first Star Wars. Oh, I'm thinking the '80s. The very first Star Wars. 1977. Okay. Yeah. They thought it was Sweet. a shitty B movie, and they was like, oh, let's just do this Raiders of the Lost Ark thing instead. You know why I didn't think? Because we watched the previews. We watched the trailers of all these, but we didn't watch that one because Because everyone we know knows it. it. We've seen it a hundred times. That's why I couldn't think of it. Okay, I got a lot here. In early drafts, there's a lot, of, a lot to unpack with Star Wars, okay. and the nerds are going to be upset oh, if we don't talk about all of it. Big boners In right early now. drafts of the boing, script, boing, boing, boing. R2-D2, look at all those boners. Look at, hey, look. <laughs> More a lot, boners. A lot, boing, boing. a lot of people don't realize that podcasts, though, the people that record them can actually see. Uh, what you're the, doing. Yeah, the people listening to them, you can see their boners, so we can all see your boners, the nerd boners. In early drafts of the script, R2-D2 could speak standard English, and he had a rather foul vocabulary. And although oh. all of his English speech was removed, many of C-3PO's reactions to it were left in. That's oh, why okay, that's why he's always like, oh, oh my yeah, goodness. Yeah, that's why he's so shocked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good C-3PO. Oh, okay. uh, George L- Lucas's decision to accept a lower salary on the movie in exchange for full merchandising rate- rights was considered a fool's gamble on his part because toys based on movies had never been major money earners. Oh, although some movie toy combinations had done moderate retail returns. But because of the long gap between when a movie would go through its theatrical run and when any products based on it would be available, they never did very good. But okay. this movie, however, was such a, phenomen- was such a phenomenon mm-hmm. that it reached the holiday 1977 sales period in full swing and changed the way movies were merchandised forever. Wow. I mean, Star Wars, think yeah. about it. He got all the merchandise for all the Star Wars shit Man. that's still coming out. That's crazy. I, mean, how, I could probably find a thousand Star Wars things in this house. Yeah, I know. Well, and that's the way At to least. do it. That's the way to do it. He did that's it right. That's the way to do it. Because, it, you know, you create something. Well, not for not for every show. Like, no, I'm just know, saying. Maud. If yeah, somebody would have done Maud that. Maud Barbie dolls. There is Maud Barbie dolls. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a Norm Peterson action figure. Okay. Anyway, uh, and in 1977, Star Wars Han Solo did shoot Greedo first, although some updated history states otherwise. You know about the whole who shot first? In the bar? Yeah, you know about this Han shot first? No. That whole know. thing, this whole thing, like there's T-shirts that say Han shot first. God, that if the nerdier T-shirt I could never imagine. <laughs> Han well, shot first, and you're walking around with that, and you expect well the anyone whole, to take you seriously. Well, the whole thing is that you know he shoots Greedo, like Greedo's got him cornered, and he's a bounty hunter. He's catching right. him, right? So Han had to get out of the situation. He shoots Greedo, mm-hmm. uh, but when they redid, they re-released the Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when they redid them in the '90s, yes. they kind of added stuff to them that yeah. they had better CGI. They changed. 
the they changed that scene so that Greedo shoots first oh, okay. and Han just reacts because they oh. said they wanted you know Lucas wanted Han to be a good guy and okay. good guys don't shoot first kind of thing. But Star Wars nerd purists went were livid. They went They're like, that's not shit. Star Wars. Fuck. He's supposed to shoot yeah. first and Han shot first. And I, everybody needs to Han shot first. Oh, man, like, I there's, bet. There's nerds that, you know, they go to job interviews and they're like, well, what, what's, uh, you know, what do you want to tell us about you? Han shot first? Yeah. You know, they oh get my crazy. God, crazy. Due to the limited budget, the American cast members and crew, including George Lucas, all decided to fly coach to England rather than first class. When Carrie Fisher's mother, Debbie Reynolds, heard about this, mm -hmm. she called Lucas complaining about how insulting it was for her daughter to be flying coach with the losers and the garbage of the world. Yeah. Fisher was in the room when Luke, with Lucas when he took the call, and after a few minutes she asked if she could talk to her mother. When Lucas handed her the phone, she simply said, Mother, I want to fly coach. Will you fuck off and hung up? <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. She told Debbie Reynolds to fuck off. That's pretty funny. And then, but Debbie Reynolds was just looking out for her daughter. Right. And, and she died like a week after her daughter. Yeah. Rest in peace, both those ladies. I thought it was the other way around, but I don't no, know. No, no. Uh, uh, Carrie Fisher died first. Oh, she did. Han shot first. Carrie Fisher died first. Okay. Keep oh, moving. Okay. Remember, we got a lot yeah, shut up. left to go. The name Wookiee came about as a result of an accident when San Francisco DJ Terrence McGovern was doing voiceover work on THX 1138. Remember that horrible movie in 1971 we talked about? Oh, yeah. Uh, he made a blunder, and he, and he exclaimed in that movie, I think I ran over a Wookiee back there. And George Lucas, confused, asked what he meant by that term, and he said he didn't know. He just made it up. Oh. Uh, but George Lucas never forgot that cute word, and he used it in this movie. Oh, what a stupid story. George Lucas came up with the name R2-D2 during post-production of American Graffiti. One of the sound crew wanted Lucas to retrieve reel two of the second dialogue track. In post-production slang, lingo, this that's that's called an R2-D2. Now, this is so fascinating to, you know, <laughs> all of us here. <laughs> but some of this kind of stuff, we don't have to go over all of the Star Wars lore. I I thought that was really interesting. I can't, I, I don't never knew that's what his name came from. That's amazing to me. There's gonna be okay. How so about this much. one? How about this one? Kenny Baker said, you know, he was the guy who was inside R two D two. He said oftentimes the cast and crew would break for lunch and they'd forget he was in there and leave him. <laughs> oh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, see, I knew you like that. Um, a lot of the toys weren't. That Kenner couldn't make enough toys mm -hmm. for Christmas. Because so people were holidays, wiping their ass with these things. Oh, they were going crazy so, with them. Yeah. So many kids were left unwrapping an early bird certificate because yeah. there weren't enough. Um, did I ever tell you that my friend Ethan, like he, in college, when we were in college in the 90s, mm -hmm. he still had all of the original Star Wars toys oh. boxed, oh like my unopened. God. So as a kid, like think about this. He's oh a kid. All of his friends are just opening them and playing yeah, with them and having and a blast. Yeah, he didn't open them. He didn't open them. So he missed out his whole childhood. He missed out playing with them. Uh, playing with these toys so they could be pristine collectors. Is it worth item. it? Is it well, worth it? It's not worth it when your friend comes over to do laundry and she leaves a waste uh, laundry basket under the furnace and oh, sets the no. house on fire and ruins all of his childhood oh, toys. Oh, no. 
heroin. Kill yourself. Smoke damage. So not only. So like, you ruined your childhood. His whole childhood was ruined just for his oh future. Oh my god. And then end Crystal it. came over and did laundry and ruined it all. Oh my god! <laughs> just end it. Just ruined everything. His whole life just ruined. Like uh, he could have oh just played god. with all those toys. He could have played oh, with all of them. That's a bite in the ass. Isn't, isn't that it? terrible? There's what. That's what teaches you. Well, at least they had renter's insurance. Don't put away tomorrow what you can squander today. I'm I'm joking. Of course he didn't have renter's insurance. No. Who would have renter's insurance? In college. James Cameron decided to enter the film industry and quit his job as a truck driver after he saw Star Wars. Oh, okay. Um, May 27, 1977, the number two highest grossing movie came out. Star Wars was number one. What this was, was number, number two, $126,737,428. It doesn't help me guess what it is. Excuse me. What does <laughs> that sound? It was like water was like in a, my throat. There was a frog. Yeah. It was like a ribbit. You're never going to guess. All right, what is it? Smokey and the Bandit. Okay. The Bandit is hired on to run a tractor trailer full, full of beer over state lines in hot pursuit by a pesky sheriff. You remember what kind of beer it was? Nope. I watched this recently with the kids. Coors Light, I think. I, I don't know if I've ever seen that through. Might not be right. I all the way Coors. through. Oh, you know, it's it's good fun. But like I said, remember earlier, it was either earlier in this episode or maybe last episode where I talked about how 70s movies sometimes they have so many scenes that don't have anything to do yes. with it. Like, is this still part lot of, of the movie? Like, what is this? Yes. Is this, this movie is, goes off Full on of all it. kinds of weird things. Um yeah, a lot of 70s movies don't have a strong thread, central thread. Well, on the DVD documentary, which Amy owns, because she's such a big fan of this, yeah. Burt, Burt Reynolds says that a senior executive at Pontiac promised him a free Trans Am if the movie became a hit. Oh, yeah? It did, and the 1977 T-Top Trans Am became one of the hottest-selling cars of the year. When the movie became a hit, Reynolds expected the executive to come through yeah. with his promise, but the Trans Am never came. That's a cheap shot after a few months reynolds got his dick out and as, gave the guy a mushroom stamp as tony kurt kurt what was his name is tony, tony Kuritzis says that's a cheap shot that's a cheap shot now, after a few months reynolds who was afraid of looking like one of those pretentious stars looking for freebies finally called pontiac as it turned out the executive that made the promise had mm -hmm. retired oh and the new executive refused to keep the promise that was made by the previous pontiac trans am executive this is all according God. to imdb I just think corporations, I don't doubt it for a second that that fucking happened. Corporations are so goddamn greedy. Not, not all. All. All corporations? Pretty, I can pretty much. There's probably a few that aren't. But, you know, Whole Foods uses convict labor. Found that out. They do? Yep. Well, the convicts need jobs. No, they don't. It's, it's, an, it's a horrible, it's slave oh. labor. They don't pay them. What about the company that makes whoopee cushions? They're probably pretty good. All right. They just make farts for everyone. What were we even talking about? One other thing. I you, started going off on a rant. I had a Hot Wheel of that Trans Am. It was the coolest oh, Trans Am it. ever. And now the, our neighbors down the street, they have like six Trans Ams. I know. <laughs> and every time they go by, we have to kinda stop Kind of tells podcasting. you what kind of neighborhood we live in. <laughs> yeah, yeah neighborhood true. Neighbor with six Trans Ams. The only problem with podcasting at home is we have to pause for the Trans Am to go by. Yes. Sometimes. It's a Trans Am pause. Uh, it's a Trans Am pause. Trans Am pause. Buford T. Justice was the name of a real Florida highway patrolman known to Burt Reynolds' father, who once was chief of police of Jupiter, Florida. Okay. Actually, the Trans Am pause will be in probably about 45 minutes from now. Yep. 
1977, Casey and the Sunshine Band take over the number one spot. That's the way. On the uh-huh, Billboard uh-huh, pop charts. I like it. No, we did that one already. Oh. Uh, boogie Shoes. No, nope. Boogie's boogie in shoes. it. Boogie Fever. Nope. No, that's a different <laughs> band. Boogie um, in your butt, butt, butt. Got no, in no, your butt. I, no, I'm not going to be able to think of it. I'm your... I'm your boogeyman, that's what I that's am. That's what I am. I'm here to do whatever I can. Yep. Again, uh, every time I, I, I watch like a video of these guys. I, I know, you can't I believe he's white. I can't believe he's a white guy. Like, I just. We heard it. <laughs> I can't believe he's a white guy. And he's like a, he's got a It's a like a, he's a, white guy with it's a, a new margarine spread. I can't believe he's I a white guy. I can't believe he's white. He's actually he's good. Guy. I don't hate him. <laughs> uh, I hate white people. All right. Seriously. What's I've never met a white person I like. June 18th, 1977, Fleetwood Mac takes over the one number one spot on the Billboard charts. Fleetwood Mac. Rihanna? No, Rihanna wasn't around yet. Rih- no, Rihanna is a singer. No, Rihanna is the name of a song <laughs> that they sing. Oh, based on Rihanna? Stop it. What is it? Um, this song is from their 11th studio album, Rumors. Mm-hmm. In the United States, Dreams was released as the second single from Rumors on March 24, 1977. Dreams? Dreams. You know this? Dreams. You don't know this? This is like... I'm, I'm sure I know it. I just yeah, can't think it, of it. I, I didn't know it by name either, but it's like one of the... I'm sure I know it. I like Fleetwood Mac. You should know it. You always tell everyone you're a Stevie Nicks enthusiast. I've never... I don't recall mentioning that. Every day you say that. First thing in the morning, you say, wake up, honey, it's time to get up. I'm a Stevie Nicks enthusiast. Oh, I love this song. I thought you didn't know it. This is a great song. Do they ever say dreams? Yeah, I think they say. Okay, anyway. Yeah, you know that song. Um... The members of Fleetwood Mac were experiencing emotional upheavals while recording this album. Mick Fleetwood was going through a divorce. John McVie was separating from his wife, Christine McVie. Yep. Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks were ending their eight-year relationship, which... Then she started with Mick Fleetwood then, right? Yeah, I, I guess. Um, I think she passed around. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely was. But Buckingham said we had to go through this elaborate exercise of denial, keeping our personal feelings in one corner of the room while trying to be professional in the other. And um, I actually talked to Lindsey Buckingham's uh, tour manager recently. Oh, you uh, did? Yeah, because he's on tour by himself and Fleetwood Mac's together without him. Oh, and, they are? And they're actually in court suing each other. I can't remember who's suing who. Oh, you're kidding. It's not amicable right yeah. now. Yeah. And so I kind of said to him, like, what's the deal? And he kind of said, well, basically, you know, it's it's to do with their relationship. Like, they used to date. June 25th, 1977, Marvin Gaye takes over the number one spot on the Billboard charts. And he say, what was he singing? The Billboard singing? pop chart? Ha- you'll have chart? to tell me. I'm not going to guess. Got to give it up? I know the song. It was written by singer, it was written by Marvin Gaye and produced by Art Stewart as a response to a request from Gaye's record label that he performed disco music. Yeah, I'm going to know it the minute you play it. Yeah, I know this one. It's not all, not all disco is good. 
I love disco. You know that. I do know that. It's a gay man in me. You, you've had, would you like a gay man in you? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. All right. I just came out. I, I saw the Rolodex of possible jokes go through your head. What? You saw it? Yeah, I did. Mm. All right, July 2nd, 1977, Bill Conti takes over the number one spot. Do you know who Bill Conti is? Nope. You will as soon as you know this song. I mean, you'll know the song immediately. What's it called? Oh, yeah. Of course. Okay. The song is often played at sporting events, especially in Philadelphia. Yes. I can imagine. Rocky Balboa runs up those stairs playing we, that. We um, that? They would play it when the kids were going to the Special Olympics at school. Oh, yeah? And on both sides of the hall, mm -hmm. all the other students would line all the hallways. Oh, really? And While they the ran down? We ran down. The That's kids awesome. ran down, and they played the song and stuff. That's awesome. And they clap. Everybody clapped That's for cool. Them. Make them feel yeah. like superstars. That's, That's good. Right. I like that. That makes me feel good inside July 9th, 1977. Mm -hmm. Alan O'Day takes over the number one spot. Another song. Okay. Do you know who Alan O'Day is? No, but I, I bet I know the song. You do? Maybe. What's it called? Maybe. My Undercover man. Angel. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Then I might not know it. The song, which O'Day described as a nocturnal novelette, was released without fanfare in February of 77. Within a few months, it had reached number one in the U.S. without an album even to support it. Okay. And O'Day actually wrote the song, too. He was a, like the, one okay. of the first singer-songwriters, and they formed a whole record label just for singer-songwriters. I was going to say, he wasn't one of the first singer-songwriters. No, the first ones that um, they made a whole label for these guys. The label was called um, Pacific Records, and he was the first release on that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't like it. It sounds 80s-ish almost. Sounds shitty almost. Yeah. <laughs> Alan O'Day sucks. Yep. All right, it's July 13th, 1977. Some people say mm -hmm. that during the New York blackout, yeah. a number of looters... A huge number of looters stole DJ equipment from electronic stores. Yeah. And as a result, the hip-hop genre, barely known outside of the Bronx at the time, grew at an astounding rate from 1977 onward. Really? Because of the huge blackout, the New York blackout. That's pretty awesome if that's true. You think about it, it makes sense because it's kind of come from a culture, yeah. a street culture of people who couldn't afford things. Yeah. Suddenly they have the equipment to do it. It's kind of like the greatest thing that's ever happened. Oh, you're saying because they got the equipment. Yeah, they can make rent. I they thought you were saying that the DJs couldn't perform, so they had... <laughs> I don't know what, what I was thinking. No, they... You said DJ equipment was stolen. I thought you meant... I thought you meant the DJs were out of work, and everybody wanted to hear music, so they went and they listened to the hip-hop people. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay, now listen here. So the equipment was stolen, so 
DJs were made, like new poor okay. people who love the hip hop. I was thinking the discotheque DJs. No, no, rap <laughs> hip hop DJs. Like, because you think about it, like mm. I would have loved to learn to be a DJ, but I couldn't afford a turntable. They were like a billion right. dollars. Yeah. I don't know how much they were. They were real expensive. Like yeah. I always thought, how would anybody ever become that? If don't, you can't yeah. afford to do it. And then who can afford the records, scratch up, and all that? Stuff but on. anyway, that happened, and that started hip hop. All right, what's they, next? They say it's an urban legend. I don't know if that's true. It might be true. I don't know. Who knows? July 16th, 1977, mm-hmm. Sean Cassidy ruins the whole hip-hop vibe yeah. by being number one on the Billboard chart with the Duran Brown. Oh, God. The Duran Brown. Yeah. Met on Monday and his name was Bill. The Duran Brown. The Duran Brown. Yep. This song originally... Um, uh, the oh the title do ron ron was initially just nonsense syllables phil Spector wrote this song by the way back uh, in 1963 figures. for a girl group you know that's why they're singing about Bill. yeah but it's just nonsense syllables used as a dummy line to separate the stanza why would and sean that. cassidy remake this song of all songs well specter liked it so much they just kept it do to do run run um and uh, i thought there was something about the reason sean cassidy did it and i thought i wrote it here but um, Sean Cassidy did it because Sean Cassidy sucks. <laughs> My cousin loved Sean Cassidy. For real? She had She's a little a too sh- old. To she like had him. a Sean Cassidy. No, we were real little. Oh, okay. I mean, she was probably seven. Oh, okay. And she had Sean Cassidy. And I think it was a poster. Well, just think about it. that's like our daughter likes um, was it one an of the album? Jonas Brothers. So the Jonas Brothers are going to be the same as Sean Cassidy. Yeah, probably someday, probably. Or they're like the Osmonds. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you hear one of the Osmonds had a stroke? No. The one that looks just like Donnie, but he's not Donnie Osmond. I don't know any of the boys. Phil Osmond. I don't know. I can't remember his name. July 16th, said He had a stroke on stage. They all Osmond. looked. They, by the way, they all looked exactly looked like Donnie. That Osmond brother, he had a stroke while on stage, and he finished the concert. Really? After having a stroke, yeah. I just read about that. Man. Somewhere. That's hardcore. It's hardcore. Hardcore, man. You don't fuck with the Osmonds. What's who's the president? The who's the president that had a oh got pres- a, the president got of the shot Osmonds? and kept giving a speech or something? Wasn't there got some, shot some president that got something happened to him and he finished anyway? he finished the speech? Mm. There was a really, really old president, William Henry Harrison. He was like a hundred. Everybody said he's too old to be president. He's going to die immediately. He was like, you know what? I'll show you. I'm going to give my inauguration speech out in the cold. It's raining oh. and snowing and freezing. I'm not even going to wear a coat. And I'm going to talk for two and a half hours, which he did. And then, and then he, he died. He died like 10 days later. Yeah. <laughs> William right. Henry Harrison, biatch. Anyway, that was old Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. So Tyler That's, had to take Let's over. save that for the 1800s the, episode. The President Podcast. Yeah, we're going to need that knowledge when we get to the 1800s because we won't have any pop cult. We won't have any billboard charts to go nope. off of. Okay. July 23rd, 1977, stupid, crappy Barry Manilow takes over the number one spot on the Billboard chart. <laughs> With? Looks like we made oh. it. Oh, that's awful. Now, that was good singing right there. You knew what, I, what it was. Yeah, you you didn't do Looks like we made it. All right, now you just ruined it. Despite the optimism suggested by the song's title, the narrator is actually ruminating on the fact that he and his ex-lover have finally found happiness and fulfillment, though not with each other. They have indeed made it, but apart, not together. Oh, Did you know that? No. I didn't either. I never analyzed this, the words I've of that I've never song. listened to any of the words except that looks like yeah. you made it. That's all I know. 
So they said that this is kind of like the police song, uh, mm-hmm. Every Breath You Take, where people use it as like a, a song, their mm-hmm. song, but it's really shouldn't be their song. Cause yeah. It's about, anyway. And Every Breath You Take, remember they, people, yes. like people would write to sing, like, this is our song. It's like, it's about a stalker, dude. Yeah, like, yeah I remember that. No. July 30th, 1977. We're running run the home stretch, rounding the home stretch. We're getting to August. Uh, July 30th, 1977, Andy Gibb. Boy, just terrible artists all in a row. Andy here. Gibb. Takes over the number one spot. What did he sing? I Just Want to Be Your Everything. I just want to be your everything. <laughs> yeah, that's all you do is do any falsetto. It. Yeah. And, and it's Barry Gibb. Written by Barry Gibb in Bermuda. Yep. Um, and Andy Gibb was the big heartthrob. He was a big heartthrob, yeah, too. Yeah, and you know you know these Gibb brothers, they did everything together. They took baths together. Oh, they washed each other. And so Andy Gibb said, once we discussed it all and got the deal together, me and Barry, we locked ourselves in a bedroom. And Barry just started what? writing. And then he took his shirt off. Started and writing or writing? Off. Writing. I thought you said writing. And he said, when Barry writes, it's very hard to collaborate with him because he's so quick. And before I knew it, he was starting to... Touch my cheek. No, stop making some shit up. Get lost in my eyes. Then we brushed each other's hair. All right. They probably did do that part. <laughs> and before I knew it, he was starting to do the chorus of, I just want to be your everything. I don't know. No, how this it goes. wasn't it at all. And I thought, wow, what a hook. He's an expert at his craft. Mm-hmm. Within about 20 minutes, he'd written number one record. And then we went to town on each other. All right. <laughs> no. And then we went right into another one because then they wrote, Love is Thicker Than Water. You know that one? No. You want me to play these real quick? No. No. Okay. Remember, we got to go <laughs> It's the Gibbs. Quick. Okay. And then we're to... And that brings us to August 10th, 1977. Okay. So this is... Um, some This one you'll you'll probably get... Figure out pretty quick. I'm going to go back. I'm going to start by going back a little bit. Um, Elizabeth Broder was an impoverished young woman who had an affair with a married man, subsequently became pregnant with a child she named Richard David Falco, who was born on June 1st, 1953. Oh, we're going back to the 50s now, huh? Yeah. Within okay, f- where was this? What town? What part of the country are we talking? New York. New York, New York, part within of America. A, within a few days, she gave the child away. Oh, that's... The infant Sad. boy was adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz of the Bronx. Oh, that's probably a lovely couple. That probably did a great job. And they, were a middle age, they were a middle-aged childless couple. Oh. They reversed the order of the boy's first and middle names, and he was adopted David Richard Berkowitz and raised their only child. This is the David story Berkowitz. of the son of Sam. No, if they just just if they hadn't rearranged the so who was the you mom? Think that it, gave, it would have all been better if yeah. they hadn't rearranged this. Yeah, it would have been fine. Who was the what was the biological mom again? She was a destitute what? She was just an impoverished young woman. She was a street worker. Was she a street walker? No, I don't think so. I'm just a poor lady. Yeah, she had an affair with a married man and he didn't want it, so she gave the baby up. What was the married man's name? I don't know. What kind of problems did he have? So David's childhood was somewhat troubled. Yeah? Why? He had above average intelligence. Oh, that's not trouble. But he was uninterested in learning and at an early age began starting fires and committing petty larceny. That's trouble. Mm -hmm. Larceny and fire starting. Trouble. Bad science. Neighbors and relatives recalled David as difficult, spoiled, and a bully. Oh, son of a bitch. He saw a psychotherapist but stayed clear of the law. 
His adopted mother died when he was 14, and he didn't get along with his father uh-huh. or his, his the father's new wife. Oh, he was probably like, man, why don't we adopt this kid after all? So he joined the Army age 17. Mm, was that's on, always a nice solution. Was honorably discharged and sought out his birth mother. Oh, okay. Yeah, go find that destitute woman who's a streetwalker. Then he then he meets her and he hears about the adoption and it makes him very distraught. Oh. He took different blue collar jobs and was a mailman when in June of nineteen seventy six a friend of his bought him a forty four caliber bulldog gun. Let's see, giving a gun to a mailman, no problems there. Not mailmen not at this never time. go crazy. Oh, this was the first mailman to go crazy, wasn't it? Well, no. He no? wasn't the first going postal like Oh, he was postal was already a thing? He didn't go postal. David Berkowitz didn't go postal. He didn't go postal? No. Didn't we talk? We talked about when going postal became a thing. When was that? Was that this? In the 80s. In this season, was in the 80s? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So. You're postal. According to his own accounts, Berkowitz's killing career began on December 24th, 1975. Oh. On December 24th, 1975? You mean his killing began the same night ABC was airing a show called... When Things Were Rotten. This was a comedy in the Mel Brooks style about Robin Hood and his band of merry men, along with the Maid Marion. Set in Sherwood Forest, they struggle against Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham. You remember that? No, not at all. Mel Brooks, Norman Stiles, John Bonney. Mm -mm. Okay. So um, on that day, he stabbed two women using a hunting knife. Oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. Stars Dick Gaudier. All right. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad stars, you interrupted sorry. me for that. Stars Dick Gaudier, Dick Van Patten, and all right. Bernie Koppel. But it is also Mel Brooks. It's a Mel Brooks thing. Okay. I kind of remember that. You don't remember that? No. Okay. All right. But that was a killing. So, you could be watching that. Back to back to the yeah, stabbings. Okay. Um, so he's, one of the women's name was Michelle Foreman, and the other has never been identified. That was, according to him, the first time he killed. Wait, the first time he killed, he killed two women? Yes, he stabbed him. He stabbed two women, mm-hmm. and we don't know who. No, one was Michelle Foreman, and Here. the other one had never been identified. Okay, start that thing again. All right, it's not a big deal. Okay. We're moving on. Jesus. So, um, Jesus. The, you have temper much? The first shooting attributed to Berkowitz a shooting? occurred in the Bronx on July 29th, 1976. Oh, when Match Game was on, starring Pat Morita, Brett Summers, Charles Nelson Raleigh. <laughs> yes. Donna Donna Lauria and her friend Jody Valenti were eight. They were eighteen and nineteen. They were sitting in Valenti's car discussing their evening. Oh, what are we gonna do today? I don't know. You want to look at my balls? Lauria opened up the car door to leave, and she sees a man approaching quickly. I gotta go. What's this dude doing? So she says, "Now what is this?" And the man got out his gun and he crouched. He crouched. Yeah. He braced one elbow on his knee. Aimed with both hands and fired. So Jeez. he like thinks he's in a like military movie. movie or something. Yeah. yeah. Loria was hit and killed instantly. Valenti was shot in the thigh. The shooter turned and walked away quickly. And and so the guy who shot in the thigh was alive. He stayed. He yes. survived. Yes. And he reported it. Yes. It's a, it's a girl. Oh, what's Valenti, the name? Jody Valenti. Oh, the lady survived. They and both. The guy they died. were both women. Oh, there's two women discussing. They weren't going to. Oh, so when. When I said they want to look at my balls, that didn't make any sense. Not at all. Women. Well, you're always, you're like, you have Tourette's syndrome, so you're always, you know. Me? Always, Can I look at my balls? That hip comes out of your mouth look at my balls. 20 times a day. Look all right. Balls. So Valenti survived and said she didn't recognize the killer. She described him as a white male in his 30s with a fair complexion, about 5'9 and 160 pounds. 
His hair was short, dark, curly, and in a mod style. Sounds hot. Loria's father had also seen this man parked in a yellow car nearby. Uh-oh. Neighbors reported seeing a yellow compact car cruising the area for hours before the shooting. Never trust a man in a yellow compact car. On October 23rd, a similar shooting occurred in Flushing, Queens. October 23rd of 76? You mean the same time? 75. This? I don't know if I gave it to you. I might have missed it. You gave me October 23rd, 76. No, but 75. We're in 75. I must have given you the wrong year. Yeah, you gave me the wrong year on a bunch of these, so that match game wasn't really but on. It doesn't, nobody's <laughs> going to go, wait a minute, that match game wasn't on. All right. Then at the same time, Mr. T and Tina was on ABC. Taro, a single father, relocates because of, because of business from Japan to Chicago. Starring Susan Blanchard, Pat Suzuki, and Ted Lang. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> All right. On October 23rd, a similar shooting occurred in Flushing, Queens. Carl DeNaro, 20, and Rosemary Keenan, 18, were sitting in Keenan's parked car when suddenly the windows wait, shattered. Wait, wait, wait. He's 20 and she's 18? Yes. I don't know. I don't know if I approve. But, um... They so were sitting in a parked car. And then all of a sudden the windows shattered. The windows shattered. Um, Denaro later said, I felt the car explode. Holy crap. So Keenan quickly started the car and drove away, and neither realized that someone had shot them when they drove away. Even oh, no. though even though Denaro, excuse me, Denaro had been shot in the What'd head. What did you do, fart? I burped. Oh. Even though, did you hear what I said? What did you do, queef? Stop it. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Did you hear what I said? Yeah, they, they were both drove away, and they realized later, like an Denaro, hour later down the road, they were shot. Denaro was shot in the head. And, and he drove away? Didn't realize it. He drove away with he a bullet? He didn't drive. Oh. The other guy drove. But still, neither of them realized they had been shot. No, one was a guy and one was a girl. Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, this time, I got the No, they were right. both men. Both men. They were both men. But you said it was a 20-year-old man and an 18-year-old woman. Oh, you're right. Rosemary. I don't know why it says both men. Both They both survived, but neither saw the attacker. But who was shot in the head, the driver or the passenger? The passenger. And it was a woman or a man? It was a woman, I think. I don't know. Getting, I might have got the the last names mixed there up There might be Berkowitz ex so, experts getting pissed. Anyway, police police didn't link the two shootings, though. Okay. Because they, they didn't were think different they were places. And different with, types. And one, he was crouching, and one, it was like the car exploded. And without clear motives, they made little. the police made very little progress. Oh, so, but, but, again, you're saying this is David Berkowitz's account. He's admitting to these. Right. So they didn't. nobody knew this was him until he admitted it, right? Right. So then on November 27th, the same night Holmes and Yo-Yo was on, the cases of a hard-luck police detective and his android partner. Oh, my God. That sounds awful. Starring John Shuck, Richard B. Shull, Bruce Kirby. There's a reason we don't know what any of those people are. <laughs> Holmes and Yo-Yo, y'all. All right. So Donna DeMassey and Joanne Lomino, both girls. Okay, these are two ladies. 16 and 18. 16 and 18. They're, are they in a car? They're walking home from a movie after midnight, and we're chatting on after Lomino's midnight. front porch when a man dressed in military fatigues walked up and began to ask for directions. So he walks up and he says, can you tell me how to get? But then he got out his gun and shot each girl once. So you can see him like he's so to me, he's just seems like such an idiot through all of these, even though he's killing people. Why is it? Can why? you tell me how to get? <laughs> bam, bam, bam. Like, I don't know. Just a stupid idiot? Yeah, like, like just a stupid a idiot. Dumbass. Like he's trying really hard to be this evil 
incarnate, and he's just not. He's kind of a dipshit. Yeah. Um, so then he shot well, each girl once, then fired at them several more times before running away. He ran away? Yeah. Did they die? A neighbor heard the shots, came out, and saw a blonde man rush by holding a gun. Both girls survived. Oh, boy. Um, you know, they were out after midnight, and that, that reminds me of um, this onion headline I just saw. It was like a picture of an old woman that said, um, Mom strangely feels vindicated that uh, daughter was murdered when, <laughs> when she warned her not to be out after midnight. <laughs> so, strangely feels vindicated. Yeah, strangely feels vindicated, yeah. So then in the morning of January 30th, 1977. Oh, that's when Phyllis was on CBS. Christine Frund, 26, and her fiancé, John Deal, 30, were sitting in the car in Queens after having seen the movie Rocky. Oh, and they were so even though they just saw the movie Rocky, they were probably talking about Phyllis, which was a spinoff of Mary Tyler Moore starring Cloris Leachman. Mm-hmm. And Phyllis... Uh, I kind of remember that. Phyllis was Mary Richards' landlady, mm-hmm. and she moved back to her hometown of San Francisco with her teenage daughter, Bess, following the sudden death of Phyllis's heard of but never seen husband Lars okay. to make a new life for herself and her daughter and moving in with Lars' scatterbrained mother, Audrey. <laughs> All right. Um, so three anyway. shots hit the car and, and Neil drove away, panicked. He suffered minor injuries, but Frun died at the hospital. Neither of them saw the attacker. The woman died? Um, Who died? Frund? Frund, which was the Say woman. The, the yeah. woman. She died. So police finally link this shooting to the earlier crimes. So they're starting they're to finally see. figuring out people are getting shot in their cars. And all and victims had been struck with a forty four caliber bullets. Uh oh. They were mostly young women with long dark hair. Uh-oh. Mostly. Like Composite tight. sketches were made of of the people the witnesses that have seen. And the the some people say he was blonde and some people say he had dark hair. Huh. At about seven thirty PM But everybody said he was an idiot. Yeah, about 7.30 p.m. on March 8th, 1977. Oh, when Laverne and Shirley conspired to get rid of Frank's girlfriend, Laverne and Shirley. College, I like how short these are. College student Virginia Voskerichian, 19. That's not how you say it. Probably not. Was walking home from school when she was confronted by an armed man. She she quickly lifted her textbooks to protect herself. That works. But actually. it didn't. No, it didn't work. No, no, it works every time. Because he shot her in the head and killed her. Oh, he didn't shoot the textbook. Nope. Oh. So the local media is, in, is talking about this almost every day. You mean like the fake news media? No, like all the media. Oh. Circulation incre- increased dramatically for the New York Post and Daily News newspapers with graphic crime reporting and commentary. It was like the whole city. Went was nuts. to it. Everybody's buying it. Yeah, get everybody enough. went nuts. Was this in like New York. the first time the newspapers were popular for printing smut, or not it, smut, it, but like well, murder? There was scary. a whole side story that I read about how the New York Post, Rupert Murdoch had just bought the New York Post. Well, that's a, he's the Fox News guy. Yeah, and he's the one that started the Son of Sam, like. All the lurid and make, reporting and, and making, making it like a glorified thing. Well, making it like panic and, and fear scaring and everybody. Still, yes, and be scaring scared. Everybody. He could be anywhere. Don't go out. Everyone's yeah. scared. They're out to get you. So April seventeenth, nineteen seventy-seven. Oh, the same night that the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew mysteries were on ABC. Yes, Alex Esau and Valencia Suriani were shot while sitting in their car and both died. Who's this? 
Alexander Esau and Valencia Siriani. So are we going to guess the sexes now? Because we're about a man and a woman. We're about fifty-fifty on yeah, all I these know. people's sexes. The police uh, connected the weapons used to the previous forty-four caliber murders. Yeah, they know they got a serial killer on their hands. So. On th- this one, though, this police find a note near the bodies. Oh, because he's getting, you know, he's getting bored. It's a syndrome. Like, they're yeah. not finding him. They're not Starting getting Starting to clues. escalate. Yes. That's what it's called, escalating. Mm-hmm. He wants to escalate to the next level. Written in mostly block letters and addressed to the police chief, Dave- David signed the-, the letter Son of Sam, and that's where Son he gets his Sam. name. The letter explained the killer's determination to continue and taunted the police, and here's some of what it says. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a women hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped, slaughtered, their blood drained, just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. And it keeps going. It kind of goes on and on. And then he says he's he's a monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. He's chubby. Isn't that where John Lennon wrote the song, Watching the World Go By, or not? No. And then he ends with saying, I'll be back, I'll be back. I'll be back. And he didn't say, like, Arnold, because that wasn't a thing yet. No. But that's that probably inspired Arnold Schwarzenegger to say it, though. Could have. And uh, so after consulting... I got a oh, question, go though. Now, you might just tell me we're going to figure this out, but isn't that Sam? Isn't that... That's not his dad's name, right? No. Isn't that a dog or something? You'll find out. All right. All right. So after counseling... After consulting with several psychiatrists, police released a psychological profile of their suspect. On, it, it basically said, this guy's fucking nuts. He was described as a neurotic and probably suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and believed himself to be a victim of demonic possession. Hmm. There's a lot of that in the 70s. So, that, so much of oh, that. Oh, it's a demonic possession everywhere. So much everywhere. demonic possession in the 70s. May 30th, 1977. Oh, when All's Fair was on about a middle-aged man and a young woman who fall in love amidst the political backdrop of Washington, D.C., starring Richard Crenna, Bernadette Peters, Lee Chamberlain. Okay. News reporter Jimmy Breslin received the second of the Son of Sam letters, postmarked the same day. Oh. So, more taunts to the police and details of the crimes. The killer said, what will you have for July 29th, is what he said in, it, in the letter. So, they're like setting it up like, hey, I'm going to murder somebody that day? Yeah, and that was the anniversary of the first shooting. Oh. So, this throws the city into, into like widespread Tizzy. panic. That People whole day, it's probably nuts. like a curfew and nobody could go anywhere. And women oh were God. changing their hairstyles and wig, oh, yeah. wigs. They were selling out of wigs I and do stuff. remember hearing this, yeah. So, then on... Shaving their heads. So, I don't know if they did that. So, then on June 26th... Oh, when 60 Minutes was on. Yes. <laughs> Sal Lupo and Judy Placido were shot. Well, it's the episode of 60 Minutes where Morley Safer, Morley Safer uh, showed everybody all of his moles. Yes. I uh, think close that, up that on his was, whole body. Yep. I'm yeah. pretty sure. So, they were shot... Um, Who is this that got shot? Two men? Two women or one man and one woman? Stace... Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Veal. No, no. That I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, no. Stacy can be a man's name. Sal Lupo and Judy Placido. Oh, well, Judy. There's not that many dudes named Judy. So they I were they were it. sitting in the car discussing the murders. Oh, after they, having, they left the Elphis Discotheque in Queens. Okay. 
And so they weren't watching the Morally Safer Molothon. They were talking about the murders, and they got shot by him. God, they would have just stayed home to watch Morally Safer. All right, you are show. on one track mind. <laughs> Morally Safer. Okay, right. neither could describe the shooter, but two witnesses described a tall, dark-haired man in a leisure suit fleeing the area, which I thought oh, that was funny. He had a leisure suit. He had a leisure, leisure suit on. Yeah, he's getting dressed up. He's getting ready to be caught because he wants to look good. They saw him flee in a car and gave a partial license number. So the first anniversary of the initial 44 caliber shooting was approaching, and the city was going nuts. Yep. Police established a dragnet in Queens and the Bronx. So then... This is the city of crime. But then the next and final shooting occurred in Brooklyn. So they weren't in... You know, they were at the Queens and the Bronx with this dragnet. But yeah, then, but Brooklyn's where MCA's from. So then July 31st, 1977. Oh, when CBS had the Starlight, the Starland Vocal Band show. Oh, Did man. you know they had their own show? No. This was a summer replacement comedy variety show hosted by the Washington, D.C.-based folk rock group Starlight Vocal Band. Oh, my God. Bill and Taffy Danoff. John Carroll and Margot Chapman. Okay. One hit wonders of Afternoon Del- Afternoon Delight, a number one hit the previous year. Who started yeah. out as they started out as John Denver's backup group. Did you know that? No, that's pretty funny. This comedy was provided primarily, or the comedy was provided primarily by veteran DC-based satirist Mark Russell and David Letterman, oh, who funny. got his first national exposure with this program. Oh, okay. You know that? I didn't know well, that. I didn't know that either. But if you look up Star Starlet Starland. Starlight vocal, vocal band. band. Yeah. Uh, the video that we watched for that song we did that last year was looked like a variety show. Yeah, that, that's that's probably what it was from. Yeah, I'm sure it was. David Letterman started on that. That's crazy. Right. Okay, so Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violenti were in the car under a street light. Not watching the Starlight so they were, vocal band. They're parked in the car, but it's under the street light, right? Okay. They were kissing, and this man approached, reaches into the passenger window, and hits them both in the head before escaping in the nearby park. With hit him both in the head. In the went through the window, so the window was probably down because it's July. Shot him both in the head. Oh, he shot him both. Shot him both in the head. They're like, no, no, bang, bang, window dead. And and here's the thing. There's always two people. Everybody saw this shit. Now. Everybody saw this one. Yes. People were around because it was right under the streetlight. Oh. So there's a couple parked nearby, and they saw they saw him approach the car. They saw him fire into the car. Oh, shit. Then they could clearly see him for several seconds because of the streetlight and the full moon. Yeah. And they said he looked like he was wearing a wig. Hmm. Another woman saw him sprint out of the park and get into his car and speed away. So imagine being these people and you're sitting there and all of a sudden you see this. Um, She said he looked like he had just robbed a bank the way he was running to the car. Yeah, so frantically. She also gave a partial license plate. And then there were several other witnesses to the sounds of the gunshots and the car speeding away. Was it a yellow car? Yes. Now they've already had, you said that by sleuth now, you've already gotten some numbers of license plate before and then they got some more. So now they can piece them all together, right? Well, we'll see. God. Um, Alan Masters was driving through an intersection when he was nearly struck by the yellow Volkswagen as it sped through the light. Oh. And he got pissed and followed the car for several minutes before he lost him. Oh, I was going to kick that guy's ass. Yep. Thomas Scully was sitting in his car when a female f- with a female friend when the, a Volkswagen pulled right up next to his parked car, barely three inches apart. Oh. But he, he kept an air gun under his seat and he aimed it at the driver and the driver sped off. Wait, who did? This the guy Thomas in the parked Scully. car did? Yeah, he, he was parked in a car. Yeah. And a yellow Volkswagen pulled right close next to their car, 
Oh, and so he pulled out the gun because he pulled out the, the air gun and aimed it, and then the the car sped off. So it was the son of Sam. Oh man, he's probably going to shoot him. Yeah. Um, and he he reported that he was wearing a scheme uh, a stocking on his head. Oh really? Yeah. So Scully chased the car until it stopped, and the driver got out and ran. So then. Uh, Scully called the Son of Sam hotline. Holy shit. Yeah, of course. Which there was. There was yeah, a they had of, on the radio all the time. Everybody heard it, yeah. Police set up roadblocks and stopped hundreds of cars to inspect them. They found that there were more than 900 yellow Volkswagens in New York and New Jersey. So that oh, tells man. you 1977. Yeah, I guess everyone would have those bright cars. And they planned to trace each one to its owner. Yep. Local woman Cecilia Davis was walking her dog at the scene of the Moskowitz and Violente shooting. Yeah. When she, and this was right before. Beautiful local woman. It was like the day of that shooting. Yeah. She saw a police officer ticket a car parked near a fire hydrant. All right. A minute later, a young man walked past her and he studied her with interest and he was holding a dark object. Well, she was hot. She ran home only to hear the shots fired behind her in the street. Oh, shit. So she can't. But it she could have been her. You know, she came to the police four days later. But, you know, it seems like that. he's trying. Well, I guess not all the time. It seems a lot of these he's trying to target people where there's two people. Because I think he wants to get caught. He wants the other one to, I don't know, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. So the about. police start suspecting that Berkowitz is the son of Sam. Because of, like, that it thing with the lady with the... They find out, they check all the ticketed cars. Yeah, well, how do they find out it's Berkowitz? They f- so they... they, they look at all the cars that were issued tickets at that time of that so, day in that area. Okay. And they see a yellow Volkswagen and then they see it's registered they to him. See it's, yes. So now they have some clues. They're like, these were ticketed. She heard the shots right after seeing the car get ticketed. It, well, and she and gave her that Volkswagen. creepy look. And remember? He, yeah, the creeper was there Yeah. while he was getting ticketed. But he gave her a creepy look. Yeah, and then and then he, he walked away, ticketed. and yeah. then she saw she knows he got ticketed. Yeah, so that was how it. Right, exactly. So so ticketing is good. So if you get a ticket, you should yeah. pay it. Oh, I got a ticket. I got to pay. Yep, you do. Anyway. August tenth, nineteen seventy seven. Oh, I had August ninth first. Oh, okay. We can skip that because Match Game was on with Brett Summers. Okay. Elaine Aug- Joyce, Richard Dawson, and Charles Nelson Riley again. August. Oh, no, I already did match games. Never mind. We did that. Sorry. Okay. August 10th, 1977, when the Calacacs were on, J.T. Calacac inherits a gas station in Nowhere, California, and moves his family from Appalachia. Wife Venus, teenage Bonnie Lou and Jr. are joined by dim-witted employee Oscar. J.T. tries to that get rich by awful. scams and not paying taxes. Why would you even bring that up? Starring Bonnie Ebsen, David Huddleston. Buddy Ebsen? Bonnie Ebsen. Bonnie Ebsen. Bonnie Ebsen, David Huddleston, and Edie McClurg. That's why I bring it up. Edie McClurg. Oh, she was goodness. on a show. I did something for that. Edie McClurg. So She's Mrs. Poole. August tenth, nineteen seventy-seven. The police go to sir, and they Calcax. go out, they they go to where Berkowitz lives, and his his car is right out front. Oh boy! And they look in the windows, and they see a rifle on the back seat. So oh, they shit. they go ahead and search the vehicle. They're searching the vehicle. They're but like, it's illegal. To search it's it? It's an illegal search. An illegal search. They're like, boys, yep. but forget it, about found, watching Calacax tonight. We're going to search this vehicle. They found we a, don't care if it's illegal. They found a duffel bag with ammunition. A duffel bag? Maps of the crime scene and a partly written Son of Sam letter. So pretty much. <laughs> it's probably him. Yeah. It's, it, I'm probably not sure. him. They waited for Berkowitz to exit him. his apartment. He came out at 10 o'clock p.m. and got in the car. Detective John... And they were in the back seat? No. They, oh. No. 
See, they had to they had to wait for him. Because it was an they illegal search. They didn't know search. what to do. It was an illegal search, so they were waiting for a warrant. They so had they to get could, him, yeah. They had to follow him and catch him in the act. So oh, um, he got in his car, and the detective approaches the driver's side of the car and pointed his gun at David's temple. Before he, he didn't get in the car and he leave. He got in the car. He got in the car, but he didn't leave yet. Okay. And, and another officer pointed his gun in the passenger seat. In the passenger seat. Okay. A paper bag containing the Bulldog revolver was found near Berkowitz. As described in The Son of Sam by Lawrence de Klausner, Detective Faltocito remembered the big inexplicable smile on the man's face. Lawrence now that Klausner, I've got you, yeah. Detective Faltocito s- said to the suspect, who I got? You know, the man said, and what the detectives rem- remembered was a soft, almost sweet voice. No, I don't. You tell me. The man turned his head and said, I'm Sam. You're Sam. Sam who? Sam, David Berkowitz. An alternate version claims that Berkowitz's first words were reported to be, well, you got me. How come it took you such a long time? Police that sounds more plausible to me. Yes, it, me too. Police searched Department 7E and found it in disarray with satanic graffiti on the walls. Oh, disarray. I'm surprised. They also found diaries that he had kept since he was 21 years old. Wait, diarrhea? No, diarrhea. Diaries. Diarrheas. Not diarrhea. <laughs> like old diarrheas? No, there were... Um, there was probably some diarrhea on the walls. Three stenographers' notebooks... Nearly all full, where he meticulously noted hundreds of arsons that he claimed to have set throughout New York City. Well, keep the firemen busy. At about 1 o'clock a.m., Mayor Abraham Beam arrived to see the suspect personally. Abraham Beam? Wait a minute. Oh, I got it. After a brief wordless encounter, he announced to the media that people of New York City can rest easy because of the fact that the police have captured a man who they believe to be the son of Sam. Who said that? Abraham Beam? Yep. Abraham Beam, y'all. Berkowitz was interrogated for about 30 minutes in the early morning of August 11, 1977. He quickly confessed to the shootings and expressed an interest in pleading guilty. During okay. questioning, he claimed that his neighbor's dog was one of the reasons that he killed, stating okay. that the dog demanded the blood of pretty young girls. <laughs> As dogs might do sometimes. Right. He said that the Sam mentioned in the first letter was his former neighbor, Sam Carr. Berkowitz claimed that Carr's black Labrador retriever, Harvey, was possessed by an ancient demon and that it issued irresistible commands to Berk- that Berkowitz must kill people. Now, this is starting to sound plausible. Yes. I, yeah, you know, at first I was like, nah, but now. So a few weeks after his arrest and confession, Berkowitz was permitted to communicate with the press. In a letter to the New York Post dated September 19th, Berkowitz alluded to his original story of demonic possession but closed with a warning that, that had to be interpreted by some investigators as an admission of criminal accomplices. There are other Sams out there. God help the world, is what he said. At his sentencing two weeks later, Berkowitz caused an uproar when he attempted to jump out of the window of a seventh-floor courtroom. Yeah, he was probably trying to escape like that other guy. Yeah, he probably heard about it. Yeah, he was going to jump on a motorcycle. I love that story. After he was restrained, he repeatedly chanted, Stacy was a whore, and shouted, I'd kill her again, I'd kill them all again. Well, Stacy was kind of a whore. He was just reading the, the graffiti on the wall. Oh, he, or then he would say... Uh, <laughs> what was it? Uh, he, he would say, uh, Rick Ryer is a son of yeah, a bitch. That's what I would say. Uh, Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years in prison for each murder. Served in New York's Supermax prison Attica Correctional Facility. Oh, and if you do the math real quick, he gets out this year. In February 1979... Berkowitz held a press conference and stated his claims about demonic possession were a hoax. Berkowitz stated to a court-appointed psychiatrist that he was lashing out in anger against a world that he felt had rejected him. He felt that he had been 
particularly rejected by women, which could be one of the reasons that the specifically targeted attractive young women. You know what? I'm going to, I'm not to be, I'm I just not have be one more. In 1990, here. Berkowitz was moved to Sullivan Correctional Facility where he remains today. I was say, I, th I think he's on, you know, really, the world did reject him. They owed him. They owed him. Women of the world, attractive women of the world owed him. Some dates. Well, that's like those. Some what do they call those incels? They're, I don't know what they. Yeah, there's a lot of those these weird dudes guys that are just like that this. Go on guy. the internet and they think the women owe them. Yeah, and these guys in the '70s would be Berkowitz murderers, but now that's they're so just creepy. whiny crybabies. Didn't, didn't one of them blow up or go I, on a mass shooting? Oh, I feel like they did. Yeah, it was something like e e Ethan. Something oh, somebody or? and he he did a video in the car about how women are going to yep. pay for not dating him. Mm. I was like, you know what? What are they? And you know what? I think they. They watch porn, and they yeah. think that's real. Like, not, women should just be throwing themselves at me or something. But anyway, that is the end of this episode. No, it's not. We've got to talk. We've got to unpack this a little bit. Oh, okay. This son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Do you, do you think do you think there's, like, there really is demonic possession through dogs? No. no. You don't think dogs are really telling people? No. Do you think the dog was just barking at him? Do you think it was just insane from the beginning? He was insane from the beginning. So he never had a chance. Like if he would have been raised by well, I don't know about that. The Barman Bailey circus. That's all nature versus or, nurture argument. That's not something we're going to solve tonight. No, we can't solve it tonight. But um, and we will solve it. Tonight. I think that um, he was he had schizophrenia or something. Yeah. One more question about this. Yeah. Do you like anyone on the podcast more than a friend? <laughs> Such a fruitcake. All right. Do you like my hair like this? I do. Chuck Berry, get <laughs> oh, out Chuck of here. Chuck Berry keeps coming into our house. It's a really yeah. weird thing. Oh, and wait, Son of Sam's still alive? Yes, he's he's at that correctional facility. Yeah, so he gets out. I was doing the math on the, oh, yeah. the things. He should get out this year. No. Yeah, I was doing the math. You're <laughs> not doing any math. There's been no math being done yeah, here. Cover the three. And for good behavior, he gets out this weekend right in time for this right. episode this to be weekend. right now he's so escaped anyway get out of here chuck berry yeah this berry. episode's over episode 47 the greatest episode ever American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.